welcome to the Function Health Podcast. My name is Sean Strayer, and together with my co-host Ryan Beck, we aim to deliver the best content in health, longevity, medical education, and scientific career development. In this episode, we're going to be discussing all things related to the gut microbiome. We're going to cover how bacteria are named and classified, we're going to define leaky gut, and we're also going to talk about what determines our gut microbiome. But most importantly, we're going to cover all the negative conditions associated with changes in microbial diversity. And so when Ryan and I were researching for this episode, we were just both blown away with the overwhelming amount of literature, and we hope that you'll appreciate the importance of this system after this episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Function Health Podcast. Today, we're going to be exploring how the gut microbiome is interacting with the different physiologic pathways, and there's quite a bit of information here. So, but before we dive in, Sean, can you give our listeners some basic background on bacterial classification? Yeah, so most of the things we're going to be talking about today has to do with how the body interacts with bacteria. So before we hop into it, it's going to be important to get a little primer on how bacteria are named and also classified. So whenever we're referring to a particular bacteria, we're going to mention two names. So the first name, this is going to be the genus, and it helps categorize bacteria into groups based on similar structure, metabolism, and some other features. And so the second name is the species, and this is what's going to be specific to each bacterial strain. So if we mention a bacteria like Escherichia coli, the Escherichia is going to be the genus, and the coli is going to be the species. So a lot of the time you'll also hear or see the nomenclature in the shorthand form. And so when they do this, we're basically reducing the name of the genus to just a single letter. So our example that we mentioned earlier would be shortened to just E. coli. So now that we got naming out of the way, I want to touch on an important classification item. So you can classify bacteria in a multitude of ways, but by far the most important and clinically relevant is going to be the distinction of a species as based on gram-positive or gram-negative. So the gram-positive and gram-negative refer to how the bacterial species is colored in this test called a gram stain. And so we're not going to get into the specifics of the test, but they stain differently in the test based on the composition of their cellular envelope. So kind of like plants, bacteria have the cell wall, but it's made from these molecules called peptidoglycan. And what this is, is a polysaccharide or sugar that's mixed with an amino acid mesh. And so gram-positive bacteria, they have a much thicker peptidoglycan cell wall, and they have a single membrane that underlies it. On the other hand, we have these gram-negative bacteria. They're going to have a much thinner layer of peptidoglycan, but the big difference is that it's sandwiched in between this inner and outer cell membrane. And this outer membrane really makes all the difference. So this outer membrane of gram-negative bacteria, it's going to have these molecules called lipopolysaccharides. And these lipopolysaccharides, they have this little pesky component called lipid A, and it acts as an endotoxin when the complex falls apart and it circulates through our bloodstream. So the majority of what we're going to be talking about today has got to do with intestinal permeability or these things called leaky gut syndrome. And so can you go into how this ties into everything else we're going to discuss? 
Yeah, so leaky gut or intestinal permeability, that's going to keep coming up time and time again in this discussion. And I think the majority of the people listening, they've heard of leaky gut and they realize that it's a negative thing. But it really wasn't until recently that researchers have shown a mechanistically valid reason as to why it's so bad. So we're going to use the terms leaky gut and intestinal permeability pretty much interchangeably because they both characterize what's going on. And so you got to remember that our digestive system, it plays a super unique role in our body because the most of it, particularly the alimentary canal, it's in consistent close contact with foreign organisms. But at the same time, it also has to allow for, you know, nutrient absorption, water absorption, and also electrolytes. So to manage this, our intestinal lining, it's just full of these epithelial cells. And these epithelial cells are held together by these proteins called tight junctions. And so these tight junctions hold them together so close that theoretically, we're making an impermeable barrier so that only necessary components can enter the cell. And to date, there's actually been only a single protein that has been shown to regulate intestinal permeability, and it's called zonulin. So when zonulin levels are increased, these tight junctions, they begin to become altered, and we have more products that are let through. So why does this all matter? Well, when things like bacteria, food antigens, or that lipopolysaccharide that I was talking about enters the bloodstream, they're going to cause a gamut of negative effects that we're going to cover. And so for how damaging leaky gut is, how, how we realize how damaging it is, they found a couple ways to quantify it, but there's one that's easy to perform and it can actually be ordered by your primary care physician. And that's going to be called the lactulose to mannitol ratio. So lactose, lactulose and mannitol, these are two non-metabolized sugars. And so when we do this test, the patient actually consumes both of them and in a couple hours, they test for those levels in the urine. And so lactulose in particular, that's the one that's going to enter the bloodstream through these tight junctions if they're spaced out. And so for those with leaky gut, this is a good way to determine how severe it is or if you have it at all. So you mentioned zonulin earlier, and what are some of those things that can increase that? Yeah, so things like gut infections, if you eat some bad food, right, this enteric infection, chronic inflammation. You also have things like hypoxic tissue damage. That's a lot more rare. And then actually for people that are sensitive, their protein gliadin, which is one of the many that's found in wheat in addition to things like gluten, that's also can increase zonion levels for those that are sensitive. So Ryan, one of the themes that underlies a lot of the work we do at Function Health is this idea of metabolic health, or also metabolic dysfunction. So how does the gut microbiome play into metabolic health and metabolic dysfunction? So metabolic health is really one of our core values here at Function Health. And so when I say the word metabolism or metabolic, I want you guys to really understand what it means. And so when I use the word metabolism, I'm describing this large set of chemical reactions in organisms, and it's going to have three main functions here. And so firstly, we're going to be converting stored energy and food that you eat to a form that's going to be readily available for the body. And keep in mind, there's a, di a couple different ways that we can do that. 
Secondly, we have uh, the production of proteins and fats, nucleic acids and carbs. And lastly, we have the elimination of waste. And so a metabolic function or rather a healthy metabolic function is going to be a lot more rare than you might think. There's studies saying that more than 88% of American adults have some form of metabolic dysfunction and the problem is only going to be getting worse. And so that's almost nine out of every 10 Americans having some form of metabolic dysfunction. And so the the tie-in here between the gut microbiome and metabolic dysfunction is pretty clear. And so there's a vital role the gut microbiome plays in the onset of metabolic disease. And this is including type 2 diabetes, NAFLD or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and hypercholesterolemia. And there's been a drastic rise in these non-communicable diseases, NCDs, such as these, have been increased over the past few decades. And that's with the excessive consumption of the highly processed foods, or the standard American diet, if you may. And this change in food consumption over the last 50 years has changed our gut microbiome. And we've seen a downregulation of a genus called Ackermansia. And then there's also the ocelite bacteria and then the allostipes in some individuals who are overweight or obese. And so there's a few other studies that found that humans with a high body weight, high BMI, increased blood cholesterol level, and a resting high blood glucose level, they all have lower levels of these acromancia bacterial species than in the gut of a healthy human. And so the, what what does acromancia do? So they're really responsible for controlling gut permeability and regulating the intestinal wall barrier. And so we can see how it, everything's really tying back into intestinal permeability or the leakage of the gut. Yeah, that was a great overview. But for type 2 diabetes in particular, what's that connection? How, how rigid is this connection between the gut microbiome and then the pathogenesis? of type 2 diabetes. So this is another great topic that I hope to discuss in the future, but type 2 diabetes is going to be classified as a disease process of chronic hyperinsulinemia or too much insulin in the blood. And that's stemming from chronic hyperglycemia. And that's usually from a poor dietary intake and a sedentary lifestyle. And this interaction between the gut microflora and type 2 diabetes is linked on what these bacteria like to feed on, and that's namely carbs. Uh, and there's trillions of these microorganisms taking taking up home in your alimentary canal, and each set is going to be unique to the individual, and it's going to remain relatively stable throughout life. And we can see these daily fluctuations, but the largest variable is going to be diet modifications, influencing the composition of your gut microflora. So largely, these type 2 diabetics are going to have fewer butyrate-producing bacteria than non-diabetics, with butyrate being responsible for maintaining that strong barrier I was talking about earlier. It also has these anti-inflammatory properties that's going to directly beat up leaky gut syndrome, right? Uh, With diabetes, usually we're going to attack it with medications here in the Western society. So our first pharmacologic intervention for type 2 diabetes is going to be a medication most of you guys should recognize, and that's metformin. And metformin is acting as an insulin hormone regulator, and that's increasing GLP-1, that's glucagon-like peptide in the intestine. It's going to lower blood glucose. It also has some lipid absorption properties and uh, reducing inflammation caused by LPS. 
And so when we're talking about lipids here, there's a few things that you need to know and not to mention how atherosclerotic disease is the number one killer in the United States. So Sean, can you go into how hyperlipidemia or even just lipids in general are going to affect leaky gut? So by far, one of the most interesting topics that came about when we were reviewing the microbiome literature is this unique interaction between lipopolysaccharide and lipoproteins. So we already established earlier that lipopolysaccharide in lipid A, it comes from gram-negative bacteria, and it contains that endotoxin. And we also established that increased intestinal permeability can cause this LPS to leak into the bloodstream. And so this is where it gets crazy. So LPS, once it enters the bloodstream, it can actually bind to lipoproteins. And these are the same ones that carry things like triglycerides and cholesterol to the tissues in our body. So we're going to have an entire upcoming episode on lipoproteins and cholesterol. But one thing that's important to note right now is that the liver, it has these LDL receptors that can actually bind the particles and it can cause their contents to be discarded. So in that way, lipopolysaccharide can also be discarded, and in that way, lipoproteins are actually a protective response to increased lipopolysaccharide levels. And you can actually track reliably patients that have higher circulating lipopolysaccharide, they're also gonna have higher LDL cholesterol levels as well. And so where it goes awry is we know that certain smaller lipoproteins, they have a harder time binding to the LDL receptor, and so they can't get turned over as easily. And these guys, they circulate around the bloodstream longer, and they can get lodged in the endothelium of our coronary arteries. These are the arteries that supply oxygenated blood to your heart. So let's think about this. If we have an LDL molecule with that LPS component, and it gets lodged into our endothelium, you could see where the problems begin to start. So if we have that LPS that hangs out there, our immune system is going to immediately recognize it, and it's going to start mounting its immune response. So in particular, we have these things called macrophages, and they're going to go, and they're just going to engulf the entire component, both the LDL and the LPS, and it's going to form what's called a foam cell. And they're called foam cells because if you look at them under histological, under microscopic view, they just look foamy and nice and ugly. But this foam cell, it's going to build up over time as more LDL particles and lipopolysaccharide gets deposited into our endothelium. And over time, it's going to go undergo this oxidative stress. And as it undergoes this, this plaque starts to form. And this plaque is basically the foundation for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD. So the key takeaway here is that you really don't want circulating LPS, and to not have circulating LPS, you want to maintain a low level of intestinal permeability. And one of the ways, there's a couple ways to maintain the integrity of these tight junctions, But one of the ways is fiber. So Ryan, why don't you go into fiber for us and how that can protect us 
So fiber is really just an indigestible carbohydrate and we can break it down into two categories here. So we have soluble and insoluble fibers and it really does increase your gut microbial diversity but unlike most carbs that are cleaved into these six carbon sugar molecules it's able to pass through the body undigested and that's due to these lack of digestive enzymes that we carry so while remaining intact fiber is able to pass through the digestive tract and help regulate the uptake of glucose and that's going to regulate blood sugar and help curb hunger that's by slowing down the uptake of nutrients in the system and it increases the rate of elimination. So while there are many subtypes of soluble and insoluble fibers, uh, most of what we're getting from is occurring naturally in plants and others can be synthetically created. So someone like the brilliant Dr. Lustig would say one of his great mantras is protect the liver and feed the gut. So what ways are we feeding the gut? What sources of food do we derive fiber from or what food sources do we not get enough of that are that maybe we could uh, implement into our diet? For me personally, in my diet, I'm getting most of my fiber from things like avocados and nuts. Those have high fiber content. But the problem with the standard American diet is that it's super refined processed carbohydrates that have been stripped of all their fiber. And so we see an issue with that nowadays. But plant cell walls are actually going to be made of cellulose. And that's a polysaccharide consisting of beta glucose chains. And it's unable to be liberated. There's also things like lignans and beta-glucans that's found in wheat and uh, oats respectively. The soluble fiber, it's going to attract water in the gut and this water along with the soluble fiber is going to form this gel-like substance and it's going to slow the rate of digestion. Uh, And it's lowering uh, glucose post-meal, therefore lowering insulin spikes and it's protective against diabetes. Remember, it's all going back to insulin. Soluble fiber interferes with bile acid production and therefore can lower blood cholesterol as well. And so this is really interesting. So we have cholesterol found in the liver and it's producing these bile acids. And then the soluble fiber then binds to these bile acids in the gut and excretes them from the body, right? So the resulting, you have a lowered bile acid amount in the body and it's triggering the liver to pull cholesterol from the blood and produce new bile acids. And you have a total lower blood cholesterol level. And so I found another interesting study in how they took a modern westernized diet that's typically low in fiber, high in red meat, and super processed food. Remember, it's not what's in the food, it's what's been done to the food, right? So it's increasing harmful gut bacteria. We're weakening intestinal cell walls and we can have this thing called, it's leading to this thing called diverticulosis. And if you don't know what this is, it's a disease process in which these small pouches called the diverticula in the large intestine, uh, and each one of these can be potentially infected. And it's usually by like that small food particle, excuse me, and notably things such as nuts or popcorn. So once it gets lodged in this this outpouching, it can become inflamed or infected and it leads to diverticulitis. And that's a painful abdominal disease process that needs treatment with antibiotics and NSAIDs. So where's like the origination of our diverse microbial life living in our GI tract? Is it just come in during gestation or when is this arising? Yeah, so it's a good question. It's actually something that is continuing to be studied to this day. And so Prior to recently, they thought that the in utero environment was one that was basically aseptic, but they actually established recently that bacteria and bacterial products 
they can actually get transmitted to the fetus in utero through things like amniotic fluid, meconium, and I don't know how it got there, but placental circulation as well. But if you think about it, that's only going to comprise a small amount of the organisms compared to the diverse flora that develops in childhood and then later in adulthood. And so another developmental factor, so there's a slight difference between those born vaginally and then those that are born uh, delivered through C-section. So vaginal births, they tend to favor the lactobacillus genera. And then those that have gone through C-section delivery, they're going to have more of a predominant streptococcus colonization. But even with those slight differences, the microbiome of children, they start to stabilize over the age of three. But another developmental factor that's going to show how important dietary changes are. So our babies that are breastfed, they're going to have this continual shift towards lactobacillus and other species that can break down these things called oligosaccharides that are found in the breast milk. And then on the other hand, we have our formula-fed babies, and they're going to start gathering this enterococcus and bacteroideres genera. And not, it's not like one is positive and the other is negative, but it just shows you how sensitive we are to dietary changes. So continuing through our developmental years, we have other exposures to bacteria in things like soil, and it's also going to shape our gut flora. And we, we kind of live in an asterial environment nowadays, and I feel like kids are just not playing outside more as much as they used to. And this might be a good driving force to get kids outside, especially in those early years, so they can establish a diverse gut microbiome. And so, but the single most important thing that's going to influence it long term is going to be our dietary composition. So like Ryan mentioned earlier, the standard American diet is like the proverbial match that sets off this microbial bomb. So it's usually lacking in fiber high in fructose, and also, as we know, highly processed. In this triad, it's going to shift the microbiome to favor these pro-inflammatory species that are going to produce this unfavorable phenotype. And so when we talk about stricter diets, like those that follow a vegan or a vegetarian diet, and I'm talking about the ones that are full of whole foods, and so it's not going to be your college vegan diet that's full of Cheetos, Um, they're going to have a microbiota that favors these anti-inflammatory genera like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, And they're also going to have a lot of these short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria, which we're going to hop into later. And these are going to contribute to a strong gut microbiome barrier and also a strong blood-brain barrier. Another really interesting one is what we see with humans and mice that go on a ketogenic diet. So after a couple months, in both humans and mice of this high-fat diet, we have a reproducible shift toward these two genera in particular. And it's going to be our Ackermansia and Parabactoideres. And so one of the most interesting studies, researchers, they took this epilepsy model of mice and they subjected them to a ketogenic diet. And so like we mentioned in our previous podcast, the ketogenic diet is inherently protective against seizures. So what they did in this study is they took the one group of mice and they actually sterilized them so that they did not have any microbiome composition at all. And in that group, they found that there was no attenuation in seizures, even on a ketogenic diet. 
And so this kind of lead led the researchers to believe that at least some of the anti-seizure effects of the ketogenic diet are going to be coming directly from these bacterial products and how they affect signaling in the brain. So in addition to food composition, another one that's super important is nutrient timing and how that plays a role in bacterial regulation. So you have to remember that pretty much every cell in our body, it follows this circadian clock and that most of the functions, they're dependent on our diurnal behavior. So awake during the day and asleep at night. And it's crazy to think about So these bacteria, their entire lifespan, they're going to be isolated from light completely, and yet they still have a circadian phenotype. And so the researchers, they don't know what the mechanism is yet, but they think that this nutrient and metabolic interactions between the bacteria and the host, it's going to play a significant role. So when people undergo stressors that disrupt the sleep-wake cycles, like jet lag or working night shift or working, you know, these long, crazy hours, they're going to be more prone to these metabolic derangements. And part of that is likely coming from this circadian activity in the bacteria. So I know we unpacked a lot in this section, but it's important to remember that any diet that is low in processing and high in these vital nutrients like fiber, it's going to benefit you in the long run. So in addition to fiber, one of the things we hear about a lot when we're talking about how to produce a diverse microbiome is probiotics. So how do probiotics play into keeping our gut microbiome healthy and diverse? So probiotics are just really live bacteria and yeast that are considered these white hat bacteria in your gut, right? And there's a few of them that I want you guys to commonly know about. And namely, that's the probiotic lactobacillus, and that's found in yogurt or other fermented foods. So this this can be also beneficial for those who really can't digest lactose. And there's another one uh, called bifidobacterium, and that can help with symptoms of IBS. Sean, I know you consumed a few of these in your day, but uh, there's a wide range of effects on the user, such as improving insulin sensitivity. You can reduce inflammation, and that's by reducing these pro-inflammatory cytokines and even reduce intestinal permeability. So a common bacteria used to study diabetes and probiotics, it's called A. mucinophila, uh, and they've shown that it reduces insulin resistance and it reduces destruction of the intestinal wall barrier. And so type two diabetics, even pre-diabetics, have shown to have reduced levels of this genus, the A. mucinophila, the species, excuse me, and suggesting that it could possibly serve as a biomarker of impaired glucose tolerance. Because right now we only have things that can really give us a snapshot in time, not really give us a good clear picture of glucose tolerance. And so note that we're strictly talking about type 2 diabetes rather than type 1 or even gestational diabetes as it's correlating with hormonal changes rather than insulin sensitivity. And since you're more familiar with this topic of irritable bowel syndrome, I'll let you take off for us what, how the gut microflora interacts with IBS. So irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, this is a common functional gastrointestinal issue. And as common as it is, though, its mechanism is actually still being worked out. But one of the recurring themes in almost every piece of literature that you read about IBS, a lot of them mention this idea that bacterial composition plays a direct role in its prevalence. 
And so in this domain, there's kind of two prevailing theories. And the first that is that there's this overgrowth of a pro-inflammatory bacteria following a enteric infection. So whether you're exposed to this pathogenic bacteria through diet or some other method, it's going to basically go in and it's going to outnumber the amount of healthy bacteria and it shifts the microbiome in a way that leads to chronic inflammation. And the other one is this idea of this linkage between IBS and this thing called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And so small intestines, they, their bacterial density is usually very low. But what can happen in patients with this condition is that we get an overgrowth of both pathogenic and also even healthy normal bacteria, but it just shouldn't be in the small intestine in those amounts. And so when we get this overgrowth, we're going to have these negative changes in digestion and also gut motility that plays right into IBS. So another gastrointestinal issue that is different and also way more severe than IBS is going to be our inflammatory bowel disease or IBD. And so this one, you're just going to have chronic inflammation of the GI tract. And so in a similar fashion, they're linking the pathogenesis of IBD with some of these inflammatory mediators that are associated with certain bacterial species. And they think it plays a significant role in its development. And over the last decade, the medical community, they started to push this idea of antibiotic stewardship. And so our physicians and our providers, they're more diligent in prescribing antibiotics, and they're not prescribing them for unnecessary conditions. So it's not like every kid coming into the pediatrician, to the pediatric clinic, if they have like a little cough, it's not like we're going to put them on a big, broad-spectrum antibiotic. And so one of the driving factors for this push towards antibiotic reform was the recognition that the antibiotics that we put people on can drastically reduce the diversity of the microbiome. And the problem in particular with broad-spectrum antibiotics is they go in and they kill or inhibit the growth of a wide range of bacteria, both pathogenic and beneficial. It's like going out to the field with a flamethrower and just lighting it all on fire. And so after treatment with broad-spectrum antibiotics, the majority, not the minority, but most patients experience a dramatic shift in their gut microbiome. And they get this shift in, they get an increase in these problematic species, and then also a marked decrease in these ones that produce these beneficial short-chain fatty acids. And so Many of these patients, they return to baseline after a month or two of therapy, but the problem is some of them face these long-term consequences as a result of this shift. And one of the most dramatic but actually common manifestations of this is going to be our Clostaroides difficile infection. So following antibiotic use, especially with recurrent, with recent hospital admission, patients are going to experience a shift in their flora that allows this C. diff to multiply. And it's because there's less competition with our healthy microbiome or healthy bacteria, and this C. diff just rapidly proliferates. And so C. diff, it's going to be a gram-positive endospore-forming bacteria. And endospores, you could think of it as a protective shield that protects it against things like antibiotics. And so 
C. diff, it's going to release these products which are directly inflammatory to the colon and the patients get this really gnarly osmotic diarrhea. And the problem is because of antibiotic resistance and then also the endospore, C. diff is super hard to treat with our conventional antibiotics. So this actually has been an arising problem in the medical community where we're having these superbugs, these antibiotic resistant bacteria coming about all the time and we don't have the technology or the medications to fight off these bacterial species that are being they're being able to transfer their genes horizontally even vertically throughout other species and so one of the key topics that we need to focus on is how to maintain a healthy immune function in order to still maintain a healthy lifestyle. So how does the gut microbiome influence our immune function? So yeah, this is a super important topic. And so the majority of our immune system maturation, this is gonna take place during the early developmental years. And you might remember from earlier in the episode, we said that this is also the time when the microbiome is the most diverse from human to human. So you can see how important and preserved this crosstalk is going to be in these early years between our immune system and our microbiome. And it's also fine-tuned because, you know, if you take an infant that for some reason has a marked undercolonization during the formative years, they're going to have this increased susceptibility to pathogenic organisms. Whereas if you have an overcolonized infant, they might be set up for these immu- overactive immune system related diseases and these uh, you know inflammatory diseases that uh, are, that have been continuing to pop up. And so some of the best studies done in this realm, they take these germ-free mice that are basically sterile and they look at the composition of their immune system. And they notice that when they wipe the microbiome out of these mice, they note structural defects in lymphoid tissue, actual structural defects, and a severely depressed immune function. And the amazing thing is that you can actually remedy this by building a diverse and healthy gut microbiome in these germ-free mice. And so another amazing thing that just shows how preserved this crosstalk is, is that in the early colonization of bacteria, they actually teach our immune system what organisms are pathogenic and then which are harmless. So we have these proteins called toll-like receptors and pattern recognition receptors. And they basically can recognize certain molecules released by bacteria and those are what amount the immune response. And so if you think about it, with all the bacteria, the trillions of bacteria we have in our gut, it would be pretty counterintuitive for our immune system to just be consistently on full blast. So it has to learn what type of flora normally predominates and then which are potentially pathogenic. And so over time, as this healthy and diverse flora associate with our immune system, the immune system starts to learn which are okay and then which are pathogenic. And so another common soul relationship that I found interesting was the, this connection with the Staphylococcus epidermidis that's on our skin and some wound healing. So we have Staph epidermidis all over our skin. Everybody's a carrier of it. And so when we get a cut or a puncture or really any injury that's going to cause tissue damage, 
our cells, they're actually going to recognize this lipotecaic acid that's found in the bacteria, and it's, that is what's going to start this immune response, and it's going to start imp suppressing inflammation, and it's going to kick off this tissue healing cascade. And so, you know, with all this research, it's going to be super interesting to see where the field goes as far as developing some type of maybe targeted microbial therapy to help with both immune compromisation and also these inflammatory mediated diseases that come from overactive immune response. So Ryan, one organ or I guess organ system that I know our listeners are going to be curious about is the gut-brain barrier and the connection with the central nervous system. So can you go into that for us? So before deep diving, uh, researching for this podcast, I didn't really appreciate how closely related the human gut microbiome is in relation to our brain health. So it can impact in a few ways, right? So we have structural components of bacterial lipopolysaccharides, the LPS, that provides low-grade stimulation to the central nervous system, the CNS. But with overstimulation, and that's from bacterial dysbiosis, it's going to lead to systemic or CNS inflammation. So another way, we have bacterial proteins, uh, and they're able to react with human antigens, and that's going to stimulate another dysfunctional response of the immune system. Uh, these gut bacterial enzymes can even produce neurotoxic metabolites, and that's D-lactic acid and ammonia, namely. And I'm going to go into that a little bit more in depth here shortly. Even like the beneficial ones, even like the short chain fatty acids mentioned earlier, and those can exert neurotoxicity as well. And these gut microbes even produce hormones and neurotransmitters that are chemically identical to the endogenous hormones that we even re release, right? And so that's things like the serotonin and dopamine. These are chemically identical to each other. And these various mechanisms, they can influence things like sleep and stress in the individual, and that's acting on the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so this is that's a whole like jumble of words, right? And so just know that it's going to influence your memory, your mood, and even cognition at the end of the day. And that's relevant to things such as alcoholism or even chronic fatigue. So one of the biggest tools in our toolbox here to alter our gut microbiome in a positive way, it's going to remain to be nutritional changes and probiotics, right? Because we can't just alter our genome to alter our microbial genome at the end of the day. And this microbial genome has a total of over 4 million distinct bacterial genes, making up over the 100 trillion bacteria in the body. And when we compare that to the human gene pool, we only have 26,000 functioning units. So we're, it's no wonder why they're talking about this like it's the genome complexity conundrum. Yeah, so I mean, that is super interesting. But can you just touch a little bit more for us on these bacterial byproducts and how they play into the gut-brain axis? Some of these byproducts are going to be somewhat of an issue for us, right? So the intestinal bacteria, they're able to produce a few different metabolites and that can be potentially encephalotoxic. And that's what I'm talking about here. It's toxic to our most vital organ, the thing upstairs in our brain. This occurs from a byproduct of microbial fermentation of carbs. Once again, we're going back to the, the worst macromolecule in the universe and so this byproduct is called D-lactate and it's produced in large amounts post high carbohydrate meals and this results in increased intestinal permeability and is able to translocate the bacteria across this intestinal mucosal barrier and that's going to have direct neurotoxic effects and that's contributing to chronic fatigue. 
So another well-known neurotoxin that's been studied is called ammonia. And so you guys should be familiar with this. And so ammonia from the gut can actually be taken up by the liver and it's consumed during the urea cycle. And any sort of liver damage, whether that's from NAFLD or alcoholic liver damage, can allow absorbed ammonia to escape the hepatic system. And that is going to further increase blood ammonia content that directly contributes to hepatic encephalopathy. So on top of that, we have ammonia that can alter our the function of the blood-brain barrier, the BBB, and that's going to impair the synthesis of serotonin and dopamine that can lead to psychomotor or even cognitive def- deficits that can negatively impact your quality of life. So I mentioned earlier the short-chain fatty acids um, that can have positive or negative impacts on the gut microbiome and the human physiology. So can you go into more how the short-chain fatty acids work in our body? Yeah, so you probably noticed that we mentioned a couple of times this topic of these short-chain fatty acids, and it's really going to be an important one for us to double tap on. So these short-chain fatty acids, these are monocarboxylic acid molecules, and they're going to form as a byproduct of indigestible carbohydrate fermentation. So that relates right back to fiber, right? And so the three most important molecules in this class, they're going to be acetate, propionate, and butyrate. So these short-chain fatty acids, they're actually super beneficial and necessary because our colonocytes, they're actually going to take them in through these monocarboxylic transporters. Excuse the biochemistry, I'm sorry. And they're actually going to use these for energy. And so any of these short-chain fatty acids that are left over, they can actually enter circulation as well and help feed hepatocytes in the liver. So we see this beautiful relationship occur where we're feeding the gut microbiome, and then they're feeding us in return. And these things, they can also regulate things like inflammation, and they can also alter GABA and glutamate signaling in our brain to produce a more balanced and favorable phenotype. And as a quick aside, you might notice, if you think back to our episode on the ketogenic diet, if you're an astute listener, you might have noticed that a lot of these beneficial functions that we're talking about with short-chain fatty acids, they're very similar to the ones that come from the ketogenic diet. And that's because the predominant ketone body that is produced with the ketogenic diet is going to be beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is nearly identical to butyrate itself. So we hope you realize through a discussion the importance of the gut microbiome in health and disease. We have trillions of these metabolically active bacteria that are housed in our body throughout our entire lives. And the overwhelming amount of data supporting these topics discussed today should lead you to recognize the fact that this is a system that you want to optimize. And so health and longevity, they're not things that come freely. And they're things that we have to work towards and strive towards every day. So through this episode and through every episode, we hope to educate the listeners more and more so you could take small steps towards bettering your lives. As always, thank you for listening, and we can't wait to catch you next time on the Function Health Podcast.